I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians 4. We are elegantly traveling at a snail's pace. But in our current world climate, the attacks that are coming upon the church and the churches that are falling apart before our eyes, the message of unity is important. And it's not just unity for unity's sake. Well, this is what we ought to do. You find out that that's a slippery standard standard can change pretty quickly. It can fluctuate dramatically because all you need is somebody who seems a little bit more well-educated with a stronger type of opinion. And next thing you know, a whole group of people get swayed and they stop caring about what truth is. I've never found anything more frustrating in my life than somebody will come to me and say, what do you think I should do about this situation? I said, well, did you know that in the word of God, it says this? And they're like, yeah, but what do you think I should do? Interesting. And so whenever we step into chapter 4, remember, we're stepping into a hinge. We're stepping into a new area. And the new area is only effective if we take the previous three chapters with us. So let me state it this way. You have to know, you have to begin to get a grasp on all that is true of you in Christ. If behavior, attitudes, choices, way of life, the very goal of why you live will ever be different. But if we're going to run into this whole mess of, well, you know, January 1st, 2024 is coming up. It's a new year. It's a new you. Turn that diet program off. They are liars. It's not true. Resolutions never helped anyone. You say, well, it helped me. That was the best you could do without Jesus. And if we're going to be doing something without Jesus, I would rather do worse with Jesus than better on myself. Because I know who's to get the glory in all of this. The problem is, is usually Jesus' way is not attractive. When we've got an entire media landscape that has been orchestrated and designed by the enemy, For one reason only, and that is to create division, division, division in our nation at all times. The church needs to back up to Ephesians 4 and say, stop, we are unified because Christ is unified. Period. Well, don't you want to belong to this group? Well, don't you want to be accepted here? Well, if you don't do this, they might cancel you. Well, then cancel me. If you notice, even people who don't have the Lord are starting to get tired of all of this entitlement thinking, all of this pushiness. Well, if you don't think this way, then you're not really in with it. Well, then cool. I have the truth. The truth is always relevant. It's never not relevant. And you happen to be out of step with what's really going on. So if that is the case, Jesus tells us, opt for unity. Unity is the way to go. So he starts with the commission, and it's a verse that we're working on right now. In verse 1 he says, Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, somebody's getting ready to break my heart, and that's okay. What is our calling? What have you been called to, Christian? No, no. 
That's what we're supposed to do, discipleship and be a witness. Evangelism and discipleship is what we're to be about. That's the business that we're about. But what is your calling? Man, I made a big deal about it and cried a little bit last time. What is it? Real quick, Kathy Grant, say it loud. To know the riches of the inheritance that we are for God. That's what we're called to. Okay, here we go. Everybody turn back to chapter one. Let me hear those pages, Russell. Let me hear those phones clicking, okay? Because I want you to mark it. Because here's the reason why. If you will dwell, marinate, meditate on this fact, your entire life will absolutely change. And all you had to do was just keep a section of God's word in front of your eyes. That's it. Here it is. Look, verse 17 is part of Paul's prayer, chapter 1, 17. But this is a bonus. This wasn't part of my presentation. It's, it's for y'all. So here we go. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom. So He wants you to know knowledge applied. And revelation. They're going to unveil something to you. In the knowledge, the epigenosis, the deep, accurate, first-hand, experiential knowledge of what? Of Him. Now watch this. Verse 18, notice I pray that is not in the original, it was added for our help, but notice that the eyes of your heart, this is still the prayer, may be enlightened, we would receive illumination, so that you will know what is the hope of his what church? His calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? It is glorious that God gets us. Now you're sitting here with self-esteem complex thinking, man, I don't think that. That's okay. He's right. You're wrong. Yay him. I'm so glad that I'm wrong in how I evaluate myself. And that God tells me the truth about me. Because God is excited for that day. When he gets to gather all things in his son and gather us unto himself, he's excited for that day. And that's what we've been called to. Now, if you know that that is your sure and definite destination out ahead, doesn't it change the way that you move your life towards that goal? Just keep the goal out in front of you. We would be foolish to start out building a house and say, man, these two by fours look kind of weird. I'm done. We didn't keep the goal in mind. We didn't stay on track with what was going on. And so when we look at chapter 4, verse 1, that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling, we are God's inheritance. Shouldn't that change the way we live? That is the weight on the scale that bears down like this. And he says, live in such a way as to where we can begin to kind of balance that out some. Not because we're trying to pay God back but because all that He's done for us in Christ is so glorious that it should serve as the octane through our veins that says, yes! Why would I not want to live for Him? Why would I not want to walk in the Spirit? He, has, he is so desirous of us. He has such great and lofty things for us. And so many people are content living without Him. Jesus is just something I do on Sunday. 
How's that going? Now understand this, I'm not saying that if we come to realization of this and everything starts to line up, all of a sudden life got better. This life doesn't get better. We're able to handle it better. But we have a hope for the life to come, and that's what God is preparing us for. My favorite preacher ever, Earl Rodmacher, said it this way, right now it's training time when we get the opportunity for reigning time. And that's what it is. That's what God is doing. He is training us now so he can put us in positions of reigning. Why? Because we are his inheritance. And he is excited about that moment. So, live, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Here's the attitude. With all humility, do you deserve to be God's inheritance? No. When you focus on that, guess what? Humility happens. It's that easy. Gentleness with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent. That's what it means. Work hard. Go for it. Put all your effort behind this end. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit's the one who unifies us to Christ. In the bond of peace. Click it. Boy Scout not. Go for it. We're already unified by the Spirit in Christ. Now everything that you do, do it with this attitude and aim towards the unity of the body. So now he tells us, there is one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. Let me ask you a question. What is the hope of your calling? We are God's inheritance. That's what we've been called to. Praise the Lord. This is freaking me out. All right. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So, why should we be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Because to not do so would be to stand in hypocrisy to seven indispensable and unchangeable realities as was just brought up in 4, 5, and 6. Now, here's a quick review from last week. Number one, there's one body. There's one assembly. We may have different buildings everywhere, but if they believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior who died for their sins and rose from the grave, they are a brother or sister in the Lord regardless of what name hangs over the door. Okay? Number two, there's only one Spirit. That's God, the Holy Spirit. And I think the reason why he's brought up is because in the previous verse, in verse 3, we find out that he is the one who drew us into this unity. It is all the Spirit's doing that has already unified us into Christ. Number three, we have one hope. And that's the ultimate end as God's inheritance, like we saw in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. There's one Lord. He is Jesus. For some of you, it's Yeshua. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. He alone is the Savior. He is our current high priest. He is our coming king. There's only one Lord. And he is now and will be establishing himself as Lord over all things. And the last one, there's one faith. There's only one way as a means of access into all of this glorious truth. Only one. Now, let's have a word about denominations real quick. The nice thing about being a non-denominational church is that if you came from a previous denomination, you can get equally picked on. Okay? 
That's a good thing. Because we all come with some of our mental baggage from those things, whether it's positive or whether it's negative, where we think it should be or whether it should not be. That's okay. The negative thing about being non-denominational is usually when you tell somebody that, they all automatically think that we're charismatic. And we're not. The goal of being a Bible church is to have the Bible be the chief and final authority on everything that we think. And so in your handout, if you got one, you're going to have this nice little color copied, beautiful chart that someone named Jeremy Howard drew up. I don't know him personally. I've chatted with him briefly. He gave me permission to print this and give to y'all, but he runs something called dotheology.com. And if you're ever looking for a good podcast to subscribe to, he does a very good job of biblically balancing out and weighing out some issues. You may not agree with everything, but the reason why this chart is together and it is for you is to hopefully give some insight on why things are the way they are with denominations and where you can find common ground and where we don't find common ground. Now, notice, in primary doctrines, these are truths that affect our fellowship with others. In other words, If I'm with somebody, if I'm with Zach, and Zach doesn't agree to the things in this red column, I'm going to question whether or not we have any sort of camaraderie whatsoever because some essential doctrines are left out of this situation which make it highly concerning about whether or not he believes in the Bible. Now let me pause for a second and say this. Every problem that you and I ever deal with in the world personally family, outside of ourselves, within ourselves, the the personal strife we have, flesh versus spirit, whatever you want to say, it all boils down to one issue. That issue is the issue known as inerrancy. Inerrancy states, do I really believe that God has told me the truth in his word and the truth that he tells me is actually true? That is inerrancy. This is either God-breathed or it's not. You cannot cherry-pick parts and not have the other ones. It all needs to be interpreted, and from Genesis to Revelation, we learn more and more about God, and the Revelation progresses as we get towards the end of the book. But the fact is, you either have to come down on either God spoke to this issue, or God did not speak to this issue. It's one or the other. It's not complicated. Somebody gives you a worldview and say, well, this is the reason why I subscribe to it because my friend did this because their aunt did this and they said this and I thought that sounded like a good idea because Oprah says it's good. When you come down to that situation, back up for a second and ask yourself the question, how does this impugn or agree with the inerrancy of Scripture? God has spoken to every issue either in general or in detail, but you can find it in here. It's not a problem. And when people want to try to rationalize and water down these things, they are denying inerrancy. Now, what's amazing about this is the place that we're having the greatest problems with this is actually in the church. Churches are abandoning God's word. I've had some of you come to me and say, we went to a church service, they played some U2 songs, somebody read something from Reader's Digest, and then we went home. That's not church. That, I can't even say, I can't even give you the word that that is. But that's what it is. It's not good. So, Briefly, let's look at the red column here. These are issues that define Christianity, biblically speaking. Not every doctrine here is an aspect of the gospel. In other words, you don't have to believe certain things about this in order to be saved, all of these things. 
But the idea of needing to trust personally in the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the grave, that is the gospel. That is the gospel. All of these others are considered pillared essentials that establish Christianity. So let's give you some examples of this. The gospel message, what would it pertain to? Well, that everyone's a sinner. That's a very, very important thing. In fact, that's bad news number one, right? All have sinned. That's what it boils down to. The unique nature of Christ. That's important to know. Christ wasn't just some guy that was smart. It's some He's God in the flesh. The substitutionary atonement. Why did Jesus die on the cross? He died in our place for our sin. Uh, the bodily resurrection. The fact that Jesus, yes, he did bodily raise. He did, in fact, die, and he did bodily raise from the grave, and they could not find his body. Justification by faith alone. This is a stalwart issue for me especially. You are saved one way and one way only, and that is by faith in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on your behalf in order to deal with the sin problem that we all had with God. Therefore, he makes that relationship establishable if we believe. That makes sense? And notice the other things here. Biblical inerrancy and authority. That's a must. If somebody doesn't agree with that, that's where I start. So you don't believe the Bible is true. Why? What part of it don't you believe is true? Tell me why you don't believe that. And I ask questions until they realize that they're wrong. I know that sounds really self-serving, but I'm not trying to promote me. I'm trying to say that God has spoken. This is his word, and I don't have a problem with it. We shouldn't have a problem with it. It may be hard to deal with or digest or swallow, but there are not contradictions in this book. And he's not telling us anything that's so crazy and old-fashioned that it's become absolutely irrelevant and we've moved on from that point. Don't ever buy into that mess. The bodily return of Christ is important. There's a future judgment. God is infinite and he's personal. The fact that the image of God is in us and the fact that there is a trinity. What would be the practice? Well, biblical ethics and morality, holding fast to what it calls us to do. A commitment to the local church, the fact that gender roles are clearly defined, that there's a necessity of baptism, not to be saved, necessity of communion, not to be saved, necessity of evangelism that gets people saved, the necessity of giving, which doesn't get you saved, necessity of prayer, which doesn't get you saved, and the idea of a healthy biblical ideal of what sexuality actually is. Those are considered non-negotiable issues. Now, everybody loves to have fun with the yellow thing. The yellow in the middle. And the problem is, is that a lot of people try to make the yellow red. Okay? Leave the yellow yellow. Okay? What is it? These are convic convictions that affect ministry with one another. Areas of disagreement, but they are important issues. Let's agree. And I would have a difficult time fellowshipping with a brother or sister in Christ that may be held to some of these things that I wouldn't personally hold to because we both have biblical convictions about it. So we're going back to the source about it, and that's what's bringing this forward. So notice down there, worldview shaping, the age of the earth. You know what? Somebody wants to believe that there were a million years on that. I'm not going to sit and say, well, you're not really saved. You might run the risk of some people that would. But what you believe about the age of the earth does not affect the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the grave, and you have believed in that. Keep the main thing the main thing. Calvinism or Arminianism? I don't like both of them. I think they're both wrong. So look at me. I'm in a weird purple category. Covenant theology or dispensationalism? I'm not going to make a comment. End times, lordship salvation or free grace, and sign gifts. Church government and membership could also vary. Contextualization. Are churches like this because of where we are? Not all churches are the same. One of the worst tragedies that american missionaries have done have gone overseas and said you need to do church like we do in america bible doesn't say that 
Leave these people alone. Stay in your red category. Let them work out the yellow and the green from their study in Scripture. The other one is corporate worship style. Good grief, I think we covered everything from Miles Davis to Johnny Cash to something else today. I mean, we're okay on that issue. Methods of baptism, immersion, or sprinkling. Careful, pastor. Calm down. It's not a salvation issue. It's not to break fellowship over, or it's not to break the relationship with Christ over. How about methods of communion? People might do it differently. Methods of evangelism? People might do it differently. Methods of giving and ministry qualifications in some aspects. The Bible's really clear on a lot of aspects, but some, they vary. How about the doubtful things? These are matters of conscience. These are usually things you stand as personal preference because of your reading of the Word of God. Stances on alcohol. We live in Wisconsin. It's very interesting to hear Christian stances on alcohol. I enjoy those conversations. Bible translations. I enjoy that conversation. Clothes. Anybody know where the divine hymnline is for a skirt in the Bible? No one knows. How about foods to eat? Hobbies to uphold. Holidays to observe. The mission field. Music and other media. Your personal appearance. Your personal finances. Your personal health care decisions. Your personality. Your politics your schooling, your social networks, your tattoos, and your tobacco. These are all issues where people fall down in different areas. They have different viewpoints. Guess what? None of them are reasons to break fellowship with a brother or sister. And if you pull this, well, you're offending me because I'm a weaker Christian, there's a part of it that needs to say, then you need to grow up because that's not what Paul was talking about. Paul was not talking about that at all. So there are some issues where we want to play the victim card because our conscience is having a hard time handling the fact that Zach likes to sit down and have a beer, which he doesn't, but I'm using him as an example, so please don't all the youth all freak out like, whoa, Zach just got really cool. Everybody calm down, okay? It's not a thing, okay? Just because Zach would have a pint or whatever, I'm not sitting here to be like, oh my gosh, brother, you're causing me to stumble. I'm not here to impose my legalism on his freedom in Christ. But if there's somebody who grew up in an alcoholic family that has a problem with that and suffered greatly because of that, then we as brothers and sisters need to be incredibly cognizant. And this is why we need to share one another's lives, hang out with each other more, those types of things. So we get to know one another, to know how to operate in our freedom in Christ and not use it to unknowingly or even knowingly abuse our brothers and sisters. This is all what works towards unity. That's what this chart is really about. It's about the idea of what establishes the tenets of Christianity and how do we look beyond things that really aren't that important in order to maintain this unity of the Spirit that we're supposed to have. Now, that's for you to take home and have fun with. If you've got any questions, I'd love to talk with you about it. I think that'd be great. Now we're going to deal with this issue of one baptism. Let me say this before we step into this. My goal is not to offend any person. Okay? I understand that the Catholic and Lutheran beliefs are very prominent in this area. I get that. My goal here is to look at what the Word of God has to say and to determine from what we see here in Ephesians 4, verses 4-6, through 6, what did Paul mean by baptism? Because often you would pick up a commentary and look at it. Here, Paul is talking about water baptism, which symbolizes this. There's only one baptism that you have. My contention with that is that's not how Paul thought about baptism. 
So my goal is to show you what the Bible says about it. Number one, we're looking at this. This is a chiasm. Everybody remember chiasm from last week? If not, you can listen to it. But here's what it is. It sets up parallel structures between these letters moving into a main central focus of which Paul wants to stress. And his stress is the fact that there is one Lord. However, that doesn't mean that the things leading up to it or descending from it are any less important. He's just leading to that goal for his own personal reasons. Now, the reason is, is because when you see B up there and one spirit, and you see B apostrophe down here, notice that in the structure inspired by the Holy Spirit, spirit and baptism are connected together as having parallels that move towards this idea of us being unified because we only have one Lord. Now, why do I bring that up? You might say, so what? That's not a big deal. Structurally speaking, it is a big deal. Because when we talk about one body, one body is a result of the fact there being only one God. When we talk about there being this calling that which we have, we can only access that calling by one faith. They all play off of each other in order to state a truth. That's how chiasms work. And so when we see this idea of one spirit, Paul takes the time to put in one baptism because that's what the spirit does at the moment that you believe in Christ. Now, Take your Bibles with me, if you will. Turn to the left, over to 1 Corinthians 12. You'll remember some of this from spiritual gifts when we went through it. We walked through these passages. It dealt a lot with the idea of the unity and not letting the gifts divide up that unity, that the unity was vitally important. Some have varying gifts, different gifts. Some have speaking gifts. Some have serving gifts, and that's okay. But those gifts are to work in conjunction and harmony with one another, not create divisions or superiority amongst the church of God. So look, it says here in 1 Corinthians 12, 11 and 12 to start out, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. In other words, the Holy Spirit is sovereign over distributing the spiritual gifts. It says here, for even as the one the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Does everybody see that who wrote Ephesians 4 is the same guy who wrote 1 Corinthians 12? One body, one Christ. It's all he's not contradicting anything. Now, here's where it gets fun. Verse 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether it was Jew or Greek. How did I get into the body of Christ? Well, I heard the gospel and I believed. Well, that's what happened in our seeing realm, our visible realm. What happened in the invisible realm? That moment that you heard the gospel and you trusted it is true, the Spirit took you, the word baptized, to plunge, to immerse, to douse into is the idea, to be fully uh That's what it means. Covered, thank you. That's what it means. And baptism has attached to it the idea of death. Because when you're baptized, anytime you've seen us do it, we baptize you in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We go back under the water and come up. Why is that? Because you're identifying with the death, burial. It's proof that somebody's dead. And resurrection into the newness of life. Because all who believe in Christ are a new creation in Christ. So that's why we do that. But it also has with it the connotation of identification. We are now identified with Christ. How do we get that way? This is what the Spirit did unseen for us. So notice, whether they're Jews or Greeks, it didn't matter. Whether you're a slave or free, it doesn't matter. 
They're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. One body, many members. Everybody got that? Notice in 13, the spirit baptized us into that one body. Now, the Apostle Paul, you could get out literal word app on your phone. You could check this out. The Apostle Paul uses the word baptism three times in his writings. Only three. For it being that big of a deal of which people would divide over in churches, and the fact that the guy who all the revelation pretty much of the, of the church truth was given to, he only mentions this word three times. I think we need to go back and kind of reanalyze what's going on. He brings it up once in Romans. We're going to see that. We can see the Ephesians one, and he also brings it up once in Colossians. But he uses the word baptized twice in Romans and once in Galatians. And all of the above references speak to spirit baptism. Not one of them ever speak to water baptism. Look at Romans 6 with me. Turn back to the left just real quick. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. This passage changed my life. Romans chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now, if you've been to one of our baptisms, you know this is the passage that I read. And the reason is, is because water baptism, notice I'm not saying the church shouldn't do water baptism. Water baptism is a public identification and celebration of what has already happened to that person in Christ. How long should you wait between somebody believing in Christ and being baptized? About that long. Why? Because they're not earning anything to finally achieve baptism. It's simply a visual representation of which the church should celebrate because somebody's been redeemed. Somebody's been born again. I know all of you are scared now to get baptized because I'm doing this. It's like, you know, they've been taken care of is the kind of thing. The problem here was is that Paul finished chapter 5 saying, no matter how much sin you think you might have, God's grace is always greater than your sin. So he's warding off this conclusion they might make, huh, I sin this much, this much grace. I sin this much, this much grace. Let's sin a whole lot. We'll get a whole lot of grace. And Paul's like, that's stupid. Don't do that, okay? So he says here, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? That's this part right here. Go back. What is happening? Googly. May it never be. That's actually a double negative in the Greek. It's the strongest way that you can say no in order to make an emphatic point. It's like, no! Like that. Okay? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Does it make any sense for people who have died to still sin? How many dead people do you know still sin? That's his point. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, not water, baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into His death? Now here's the question. When were we baptized into Christ Jesus? When were we plunged into, immersed fully, buried and now have identification with Christ at the moment you heard the gospel and believed. The Spirit baptized you into Christ, into the body of Christ. The Spirit is the one. The Spirit is your baptizer. And that's what He did. Now watch this. Therefore, we have been, here it is, buried with Him through 
baptism into his death. What was the reason for that, Paul? Why was that so important? And why is it not water baptism? He's not even talking. It's not even on the radar for him right now. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, the resurrection, so we too, who have been baptized into his death, buried, that we might walk in newness of life. That's why. That's why he did it. We have died to our old selves. Old Jeremy is gone. Regardless of how old Jeremy likes to rear his head, likes to make me think into old ways and try to lure me with old sins and temptations. Jeremy is dead. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the Christ life. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That's how you live. That's how you walk in the Spirit. Because you're living with the fact that you've already been baptized into His death and God has already raised you to a newness of life. Who baptized you? The Spirit baptized you. Now, this gets a little furry. Acts 2.41 So then, those who had received His Word, this is when the church first started, okay? Acts chapter 2. So then those who received His Word, yeah, let's turn there real quick because you might have some questions about this because I'm getting ready to throw some of you for a loop. Please still love me after I'm done here, okay? I don't want to say anything that offends you guys. The goal is not to offend, but to promote the truth of what God has said. And Sometimes we've got to point out the glaring error in order for that to happen. So then those who had received His Word were baptized. Does everybody see the chronological order? Those who had received His Word were baptized. They received the Word first. What Word did they receive? The entire 66 books of the Bible? No, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what was being promoted. They received it, which means saved, unsaved. Saved people, have confidence in that. Please. Somebody receives the Word. What is receiving the Word? Believing. John 1.12 tells us that. By receiving the Word, you believe it. Notice this. And that day there were added 3,000 souls. Good grief, I wish we had a church growth problem like that. We have a little snug one going on right now, but can you imagine this? Good times. Like, get out of here, Walmart. We need your building. That'd be good. Now, I found this in a book that previously belonged to somebody who's been a member of this church for 40 years. It was given to me as a gift. Watch this quote. Can we say that they were forgiven sinners because they received the good news of the gospel? Or because they were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? This much we can say, and the italics is theirs, not mine. They could not be Christians without being baptized because if they did not allow themselves to be baptized, then they would not be obeying the commandments of their Lord. This is the book they used to teach Lutherans in discipleship. Now, what just happened? The gospel, they added to it, the gospel is no longer Christ alone. It's man-made. The gospel is Jesus did His part, now you better you do yours or you're not getting in. Now, we harp on this a lot here. One of, our, one of my greatest goals, what we value here is the gospel and trying to keep it clear and accurate and biblical all the time. But just think with me for a second. Let's say Jesus only did 99.5%. 
And we had a 0.5%. And it wasn't something that we had to guess at. It's very clear. You've got to be baptized. Do you think that your mind might start thinking, well, how good does my baptism have to be? Fresh water or salt water? River? Stream? Lake? Ocean? Because what you don't want to do is get it wrong. And here's what we do as, as people. Let's, let's understand this. We want to be so right so that we have assurance that the devil will play with our minds. And Did you really mean that? Are you sure you're really saved? Are you sure that really took? I've been baptized four times, guys. Water baptism. I've been spirit baptized once. But boy, I was unsure. Good grief, I was unsure. I've been baptized in swimming pools. I've been baptized in actual baptistries. None of those made me more saved. In fact, afterwards, I ended up questioning later on whether I was really saved because I wasn't for sure if I got baptized all the time. There's a lady online who just got saved. Her name is Kat Von D is her name. She's a tattoo artist in Las Vegas for years. Her parents, yeah, she just got saved. Her parents were missionaries in Mexico for a long time. She got into the occult, spell books, and all kinds of things. She rejected all that stuff. She goes to a little 20-person church out in the middle of nowhere somewhere, loves to sing in the choir, and she put on a film of her baptism. And Christians were actually criticizing whether or not she got her ear all the way under the water. Every time you talk, I want to take a drink. I don't know. Just kidding. It's water. Calm down. But here's what that tells me. Think about it. And I'm not trying to shame anybody or make any fun or anything like that. But really think about it. What that tells me is that the church of God actually has more Lutherans on its hands than what it understands. Well, if you didn't get your ear all the way under, I have to question. Guess what? Thief on the cross hung there and he died. Nobody baptized him. You ought to read some comments on that. Well, in the way that he believed, he was baptized at that moment. Shut up. Stop destroying the work of Christ. These are all live up to my expectations. This is legalism, guys. We just assume grab our brother and sister by the throat and love them. It's terrible. I could go on, but I won't. In 1 Corinthians... The word baptize occurs ten times. Six of them refer to water baptism. And here's what Paul has to say about it. 1 Corinthians 1. Turn there with me quickly, please. Don't have a ton of time. 1 Corinthians 1. This is over the issue. Get this. This is over the issue of unity and division. Unity and division. Has Christ been divided? Verse 13. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Was he? No. Or, were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you. What are we talking about here? Water. What does Paul say? If I would have baptized you, you would have said, I'm baptized by Paul! I'm baptized by Paul! And what does Paul say in the Greek? Whoop-dee-doo! Why? Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now notice, this is talking about a a baptism that it's administered by people 
not by the Spirit. So we know it's talking about water baptism. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. If water baptism is so important, why does Paul have amnesia regarding it? Uh, this, yeah, this guy, this family, this, I, I don't know. That's what he's coming to. He has a senior moment in this. So, <laughs> for Christ, you guys know since COVID, my memory's not been the same, so I didn't even realize I said that. Moving on. For Christ did not send me to baptize. Uh-oh. Pause. The one in which God commissioned to go before Gentiles and Jews and royalty and gave to him the revelation of church doctrine who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, are we saying that we shouldn't baptize in the church? I'm not saying that. Paul's not saying that. He's saying that's not the focus. That's not the goal. The goal is not how many baptisms did we get. If you count salvations by baptisms, you are a works salvationist. You think that salvation is only accomplished by works. Well, they had to follow through with obedience. Well, did they need that to go from hell to heaven? No, they needed to respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He does all the work. The problem is sin. And God is furious with that. And he's furious with it because it divides his creation from him. And so somebody's got to deal with the sin problem. And you and I aren't doing it. And so he puts forward his son in grace that deals with the sin problem and reconciles the two sides so that there can finally be harmony as God always intended it to be. That is the gospel. So notice, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. He's not here to baptize. He's here to preach. Why? Because that's how people get saved. People get saved by telling them the gospel. That's how it happens. Saying that they could not be Christians without being baptized because if they did not allow themselves to be baptized, they would not be obeying the commandments of the Lord corrupts the gospel message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It fails. Here's where the problem is, what it fails to do. It also fails to see the difference between faith and works and therefore fails to see the distinction between your position in Christ and your practice in Christ. It does not look at verses or chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians as doctrine and look at 4, 5, and 6 as practice rooted out of that doctrine. It says it's all one big thing and if you're not doing it, you should question whether or not you're really a believer. That's dangerous. So, Good quote. I love this guy. The positional oneness was accomplished by the Holy Spirit when He baptized us into the Lord Jesus upon believing. As to the aspect of our condition or our walk, there is all too little oneness amongst believers in general. Now, I think he wrote this about 50 years ago. Practical unity can only be realized as we are controlled by the Spirit who makes real our oneness in Christ, the head of our body. In other words, what he's saying is, is, spiritually speaking, we're already one. Now, only the Spirit who made us one in Christ can work out this oneness as we live and move with one another. I don't have time to get into this. It's a probably good thing I don't, but I would ask you to do this. Read Colossians 2, verses 8 through 12. Here's our application. Number one, God's Word teaches us that spirit baptism is the central focus of the church age. 
This was Paul's focus. This means that evangelism is crucial. Why? Because when you share the Gospel to somebody and they believe in it, at that moment, the Spirit baptizes them. You want to get some baptisms under your belt? Fantastic. Make them Spirit baptisms. Leave this water thing behind because if it becomes a stumbling block, we should reject it. We don't want to do that. It corrupts the Gospel. Number two, we must keep the Gospel message free of all works but Christ's work. Only His work is perfect. Focus on that. Number three, errors abound. We've got to know our Bibles. We got to be able to sit down with the truth and be able to work this out so that we're not easily swayed in conversations. Believing a corrupted gospel leaves you with a sincere but unsaved person. Let me explain this real quick with some of my frustration that I have. If I could just have a moment to do that. We have somebody who's coming to this church for quite a long time and somebody decided to tell them, well, don't you realize that the Sabbath is actually on Saturday? And it's not on Sunday. Sunday was created by the Christians. And so therefore you're worshiping on the wrong day. They won't come back to our church now. Is that commanded anywhere in Scripture? No, it's not. It's not. Does that fit in the red category of our chart at all? That's how easy it is to hear the opinion of somebody that you respect that has no biblical foundation for the church at all and it to cause a permanent change in how they fellowship with Christians. Breaks my heart. That's how Satan does it. Recognize that. Let's pray. God, we thank You and we praise You that You have baptized us in the Spirit, or the Spirit has baptized us, into the Son and into His body. The baptism is not a work of which we perform or must undergo in order for You to save us or love us or any kind of requirement that overshadows and drowns out the cross of Christ. And so Lord, I praise You that Your Word speaks clearly. We just need to go through, see it, read it in context, embrace it, see for ourselves. The Word of God is very clear on this issue. Thank You, God, that salvation is accomplished by no effort of ours. It is freely given as a gift. And what a wonderful, wonderful message that we can tell other people. We're not requiring anything of them. We're just asking them to believe in the message that we share with them. So Lord, embolden our hearts. Give us clarity. Open plenty of doors to talk to people about the fact that Jesus has died for their sins and risen from the grave because You love them so, so much. It is in Jesus' name. Amen.